Well, hello, friends. Welcome back to Mike's podcast uh, for episode four. It is so good to have you with us, and it's been um, just really fun to hear from a bunch of you. I'm so glad that this has been helpful for you. It's so fun to get to connect with you uh, over these kinds of things. And we have been, this is not my plan for what to do forever on this, but we have been for the last several episodes unpacking this ancient book of Job that really is kind of written and it reads like this, like this play. And so we kind of been unpacking it and asking questions about what is this ancient story saying to us today? So I'm coming to you here today from my uh, back bunker and, um, and, and we want to continue on in this conversation from back here. And I did get several notes from, from you all over the past like week or so asking like, Hey, uh, I was expecting to get the new episode and it hasn't dropped yet. And I'll just tell you what I told them. Like I, I don't have like a release schedule. I'm doing these when I can, when there's space that's freed up a couple of weeks ago, I had a lot more space in the last week or so. Um, my time has been really full. And so I, still want to get to these. I've got things that I want us to talk about and get into, but it's been a little bit difficult to to sort of fit it in. But anyways, we've been walking through this book of Job, looking at some like high sort of themes in it at a high level. And Job experiences this tragedy, you'll remember. Everything sort of taken away from him. He loses it all, loses his family and and ends up just with sores all over his body and a horrific personal condition. And his friends, his friends come to comfort him. And they sit with him in his suffering. And then they try to make sense of it all. And that's where we sort of picked it up last time is in the way that they try to make sense of it all. And in the way it sort of comes off as trite and shallow in the way that they're even in trying to make sense of it all, trying to trying to sort of control the narrative, control their lives, control the way that they understand God. They're trying to hold on to control in making sense of the suffering. And the thing is that as best as we can tell, it seems that Job and his friends hold a similar theology up until this point. In fact, Job's even been a teacher. Maybe maybe he's even been their teacher. Here's what it says in Job 4, verse uh, 3 and 4. It says, Think how you've instructed many. How you've strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You've strengthened faltering knees. And so when one of Job's friends is is sort of calling him out in the way that he does, he's like, but Job, remember, remember all the things that you've taught so many of us. Remember all the things that you've said. Remember all of remember all of this stuff. Job, Job, you've been the one who's shown us like how to think about this stuff. And now, and now it seems like you're going back on it. Job, you've changed. You used to believe in the right way, but now you don't. So the suffering in Job's life has brought them all to this crossroads. The same moment, and we talked about this moment last time, it's when your experience no longer matches up with what you've believed. And if you've been a person of faith for any length of time, you've you've likely had these moments where the things that you believed about God, the things that you believed about faith, the things that you believed about life, you encounter new information maybe, and it challenged those things. 
I remember the church that I grew up in, I, uh, all through high school, was taught that uh, Christians can't believe in evolution, that evolution is something that only atheists believe in, and that to believe in evolution is to believe that there is no God who's behind all of this universe. And then I was at college, and I was at a Christian college, I was at a Bible college, and I was taking biology with a biologist who introduced a phrase to me that I'd never heard before. He started talking about theistic evolutionists, about people who believed in the theory of evolution, but believed that God was behind it all and that God utilized evolution as the way in which he did the act of creation. And so I had this moment where I all of a sudden I had this new information and it was challenging the way I thought things were. What I'd already believed, what I had been brought up with, the construct I'd already created. And so I, I had one of these kinds of moments. And so it happens with new information, but it also happens with new experiences. When you have new experiences that don't match the boxes and the categories that you've had. And so maybe... Maybe you were taught that women can't lead and that women can't teach. In fact, I was taught that as well. I was taught things like that they're too emotional and so they can't, and that the scriptures teach that the women women are the, the lesser, the weaker, and so they're too emotional. God won't bless their leadership. God won't bless their teaching and things like that. And then I met women who are incredible leaders and who I was being led by. I sat under the teaching of women who were incredible teachers, who understood the scriptures well and brought, brought new light and understanding to me. And so I had these new experiences that didn't match the categories that I'd had. Uh, or I'd always been told, you can't, there's no such thing I'd been told as a gay Christian that those two don't go together, that they're conflicting identities and they can't work together. And then I met people who identified that way, who identified as gay and who identified as Christian. And in fact, I met people who were, who were incredible Christians, who were living out the ways of Jesus better than I was many times and who displayed this faithfulness to God and love of neighbor and, and I had to figure out, like, what, what do I do with that? I ha I'm having a new experience, and it doesn't match the boxes. It doesn't match the categories that I've had. Maybe that's happened to you at some point. Maybe you've grown up with, like, constructs that, like, if, if I work hard, if I live faithfully, if I do the right thing, if in my marriage, if I save myself for marriage, and in my marriage I pursue purity and we pray together, then we're going to have a great marriage and a great family. And then your, your husband, you find out, has been cheating on you. And it's like, but, but, but I, did, I did all the things that I was supposed to do, and it was supposed to all work out right. That it was like, if I only gave myself to him throughout my whole life, that, that it would create this, this thing in our relationship that couldn't be broken if we prayed together regularly. And, and so you had this like formulaic understanding of here's how God works in all of this. And it created these categories and boxes. And then all of a sudden you had an experience an experience in your marriage, you had an experience in life, you had an experience with your job, you had an experience, you had an experience with a person, like it's some sort of experience, and it started pushing and challenging that category, that box that you had, 
and nothing will do that more than suffering. Suffering creates a sort of like microcosm of those sorts of experiences like being supercharged. It will create these kind of moments where the way that you thought things worked is clashing against the reality of your experience. And that's exactly that's exactly what's happening for Job, that he's lived in this sort of general theological construct that if I live a good life, if I live righteously, God will do good for me. In fact, the good things that I have in my life, the reason I've got a great family and the reason that I've got plenty of money and I've got resources and I have all that I need and I don't have to worry about this stuff is because of how I've lived. This is the result of all of that. And then what happens is all that comes crashing down. And for Job, it's like he's held up his end of the bargain. He, he's done what he's supposed to do and in his construct, Now, God hasn't done what God was supposed to do. It's not working out the way it was supposed to work out. And so he has has this moment where the things that he had believed, the way he thought things worked, the categories that he had, the boxes he had put things into, he's having experiences that push against that and challenge that. this, this, This all comes up in sort of a field of study that... That was new for me in the last maybe like five years or so, although I, I've realized I was introduced to it when I was in grad school. But in, you know what happens when you're in school, right? That like you're learning all this great information, but you just don't, if you don't have the need for it at the time, it, it just kind of like you just do what you have to do to get the grade to sort of move on. And so there's this whole field of study called Stages of Faith. And really, um, it begins to get introduced largely in the 70s, although we can find writings going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years from mystics and other great um, church leaders throughout the ages who've talked about this sort of stuff. But in the way that we start to think about it now, a guy named James Fowler starts writing about it in the 70s, and then others have taken his work and taken different angles and stuff with it. But in, in a sort of stages of faith theory, one of the things that we find is that early on in your faith journey, whatever age you're at, just earlier on in your faith journey, what you need are sort of simpler, almost like formulaic ways of understanding God and understanding faith. And those are necessary. Those are necessary constructs in order to build your faith to get to more mature stages. You need, you need those sorts of things to create a construct, to create a foundation, to create a framework. But then what begins to happen as you grow and as you mature is you gain new information that pushes against some of those formulaic, simpler ways of understanding God and faith and life. You gain new experiences that don't match up with those things. And as you gain this new information, as you gain these new experiences, the accumulation of those begins to build. And you hit, you hit this period of time I want to say a moment, but it's bigger than a moment because for some people it lasts months and for some it lasts years. It's the accumulation of this dissonance that happens where the way that we have understood things isn't working with our new information and new experiences. And when you have the accumulation of those, some some people call it, it's the wall. You hit the wall. It feels like I've been running with my faith and now I'm smacked up against this. Some Some authors call it disorientation that the way things worked made sense, and now it's all disoriented, it's all out there. Some will call it the transition, because you're moving from one phase of understanding and sort of life 
into another. And there's all sorts of things that people will call this. But when you are going through that, in fact, uh, one, of, one of the ones that, would, that maybe you have heard before, one of the ancient Christian writers called this the dark night of the soul where it was like the way that he had understood God and how God worked and how God interacted with him felt like it was gone and it was taken away. And it was like, what do I do in all of this? And it felt like this this like period of time, this dark night of the soul where he describes it feeling like God is wholly absent from him. And so maybe you've gone through that. Maybe you are experiencing that. Maybe maybe you've hit those moments and you haven't known what to do with it. Because when you hit that, you have to decide how you're going to respond. And, and I've said this, but I want to push into it a little bit more. There tends to be when we hit the wall, when we go through disorientation, we hit the dark night of the soul, there tends to be three general responses has been my experience. Uh, the first is I have experienced people that hit that and they just opt out. They opt out of the whole like faith project. And in doing opting out, what you're doing is you're deciding, I need to negate all of my previous experience. I need to negate all my previous understanding. I've decided that my new experiences, my new information, it negates all of that. And so I have to throw all of that stuff that I used to believe, that I used to think, I have to throw it all away. I have to move on because this new information, it contradicts all of that. And so I'm going to move forward with the new and I'm going to forget the old. And people who tend to do that tend to be like angry at their upbringing. You're angry at your parents. You're angry at your church. You're angry at your faith heritage. You're angry at faith in general. If you read any books by people who sort of fit into the category of new atheists, you often find this sort of like just general anger towards faith in general there. There's this hostility towards anyone who holds the views that you used to hold on to. You look at them and you're like, that's a simplistic way of living. Like, how can you how can you look at things like that? It's just so small and petty. You, you just need this new information and you're just like angry at them and hostile towards them. And I got to tell you, um, my experience has been that this does not seem to be a more robust, more fulfilling way of life. I mean, I get it. I, I have a lot of sympathy for my friends who have ended up choosing this path. I understand why you've chosen that path, but it doesn't seem to be a richer path of life to me. It it seems also to be dismissive of the realities that you've already known and the things that you've already experienced, that you've got to dismiss all that in order to move into the new, and it just doesn't seem to be a better way to go to me. The, The second way that people sort of handle this when they hit that that wall, that dissonance, that that disorientation is that they they double down on what their previous belief was and they sort of like like move backwards. And we said last time this is what Job's friends do. And so hopefully we spent a lot of time deconstructing that. And and what you're trying to do in this, we said, is you're trying to stay in control. You're trying to stay in control of of what you believe in really in a lot of ways is trying to control God because it's it's a construct that you know and you understand and so it feels safe to you because it's what you've known and understood. But what will often happen is this is where fundamentalists sort of emerge is in this you hit the wall and you go back and you double down and you get even more ferocious about the way that you have previously understood things. And so while those who opt out deny what their past has been, 
What you do if you're doubling down is you deny your current experiences and the new information that you've received. You almost like have to put up blinders and put your head in the sand and be the little kid who puts his hands over the ears and says, no, 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 like I can't hear you. And, and so it doesn't seem to me to be a more honest way to live, to ignore and deny what our past experience and information has been. And it doesn't seem to me to be a more authentic and honest way to live, to deny what our new experiences and information have been. And so the third thing that we can do, what hopefully it's obvious that I would argue that this is the better way to move forward, is that what we can do instead is when we hit that point where the way that we've understood things, the categories that we've had, the boxes we've put stuff into is no longer making sense with our current experiences or with new information, we can do in that space, the third option is we can sit honestly in tension. That we can have, we can sit in the tension of what we have understood and what we are now experiencing and hold those two things in tension, but be honest about it. This is what it seems to me Job actually does. And it seems to me that this is actually where transformation actually happens. It's in the it's in the energy that's created by holding these two things in tension. But my friends, this is this is by far the more difficult journey. Which is why you often find people doing the other two. It is so much easier to just ignore your past experiences and only move forward into the new. Or it's so much easier to just like put your hands over your ears and to ignore your present experiences. It's so much easier to do that than it is to sit in tension of the two and to try to hold those two things together. But I think it's what we see Job doing. And so we see Job, we see Job first being able to be honest about his current experience. Like, listen, listen to some of the things that he says. This is out of Job 10, the first few verses in Job 10. He says, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I'll give free reign to my complaint, and I'll speak out in the bitterness of my soul. <laughs> uh, I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked? Like, whoa, whoa. I mean, especially if if you've read earlier in Job, in chapter one, like th this pushes against what Job has said earlier in chapter one. He says, you know what? God gives and God takes away. God's going to do what God's going to do. And it says that Job didn't charge God with wrongdoing. But now, but now by the time we've reached chapter 10, he's bitter and he's complaining to God and he sees God as a bit of a sadist who's just like out to get him, that you're, you're getting pleasure out of oppressing me and you're smiling on the plans of the wicked. Like, who do you think you are, God? Don't, like, you don't, you're not doing it right. You're not handling things right. What are you doing? In fact, here's what he says a little bit further down, the same chapter, verse 12. You gave me life and showed me kindness. And in your providence, you watched over my spirit. Like, God, you were, you were like doing the good, right things towards me. My life was good. You were giving me all that. But this is what you concealed in your heart. And I know that this was in your mind. If I sinned, you'd be watching me and would not let my offense go unpunished. 
that God, you were you were doing these good things, but I know secretly what you had, you were holding in that you actually headed out for me. You were waiting for me to screw up so that you could just destroy and ruin my life. A little bit further down, verse 17, you bring new witnesses against me and increase your anger towards me. Your forces come against me wave upon wave. Why then did you bring me out of the womb? I wish I had died before any eye saw me. Like, why Why was I even born? God, did you just create me to torture me? Did you just birth me? Was the whole purpose of my life for you to sort of set me up with good things so that you could take it away from me and you could just watch while you sit up on your perch and you just sit up there up in heaven doing your thing, detached from all of this, watching me suffer and enjoying it? Is that why you created me? Is that what you're doing here? I mean, this is Job. This is Job in this just honesty, letting God have it. And this is what it looks like to sit honestly in tension at times. I mean, this isn't everybody's story of sitting honestly in tension, but this is Job's story of sitting honestly in tension. He is not abandoning his past foundation. Like, there's still this God. There's still this God who's done good things for him in the past. And there's still this God who, like, he at some level, it seems like he wants to believe that he's good. He wants to believe that he's kind. He, he wants to believe those things. But at the same time, he's not ignoring his present experiences. Like, I, I wish I could believe that you were kind, but look at what's going on right now. Look at what's happened to my life. We sit in honest tension. I, I had this experience. I, I've actually had multiple of these kinds of experiences where, where, where I have to remind myself to sit in this sort of tension since all this, this COVID stuff has been going on. When it all, when it all sort of like first hit in a big kind of way and we were shutting everything down. I had friends and churches and organizations, stuff all across the country starting to do like prayer movements and starting to do fasting movements and and all of that sort of stuff. And I had this like strong visceral reaction against it, that it was like it wasn't sitting well, that I just had these moments of like, what what is what are we doing with all of this prayer? And I began like sort of like processing, like, why is this bothering me so much? And I realized, like, just intellectually, I was struggling with why are we even praying right now? Because because in our prayers, we're, we're saying like, like one of these few things. We're saying like, well, either God can do something, but he isn't doing anything. And so we're watching this thing happen. And we're, and we're acknowledging God has the ability to do something, but for some reason, some secret reason that we don't know, that he's sort of holding back from us, he's not doing anything about it. Or maybe it's, well, God can do something about it, but he's just waiting for enough people to pray. He's waiting for enough people to fast. He's waiting for you to pray hard enough, to pray long enough. And there's some like secret number that's unknown to all of us, but it's known to God that if just X number of people would pray, if X number of hours of prayer would happen, if X number of people would fast, if if like all of that would sort of culminate enough, then he's sort of like holding back and he could fix all of this, but he's holding back. And once you hit that point, that's a secret point that's known only to God, then he'll open up the floodgates and and then he'll intervene. Or maybe it's that God just can't actually do anything. And he's incapable of doing anything. And I was realizing my, my struggles with like what was going on with like, let's all pray right now. And having this visceral reaction to it that I was uh, struggling with. Well, like what, 
what is God capable of? What does prayer do in all of that? I was I was having like theological questions that were hitting me at an emotional level and that were just sort of like working themselves out in, in this sort of like visceral reactive way. And I, the thing is that like I have all the answers for that stuff. Like I, I've got the books that tell me the answers to why you should pray. I, I've taught the sermons. I have, I have sat in counseling and I've I've given all the all the answers. But honestly, those answers were feeling inadequate to me, and I needed to be honest about it. I couldn't just like double down on my old answers because the old answers weren't working for me anymore. But for me, the tension was also choosing not to opt out. I decided I'm still going to fast and I'm still going to pray because that's what I need to do right now to sit in the tension. I don't just abandon these things that have been like a part of found, like foundational building things for me. I don't just opt out of those things. Uh, I, I still engaged in them. Now, that might not be the best strategy for everybody. That might not be what sitting intention looks like for you. But for me, that's what I needed to do as I was as I was having this visceral reaction to the prayer and I was having these like big questions that swirling around that it was like, well, I need to ask those questions and I need to be honest with them. And I need to like have some people that I'm being honest with about those things. And I need to be honest with God about those things. I need to let all of that stuff out and I need to be okay that I've got the answers, but the answers don't work for me anymore. And I... I need to be okay with that. I need to be honest with that. And at the same time, that doesn't mean that I just sort of abandon this whole thing that has been meaningful and helpful for me, that has been like connected, like a way for me to connect with God. I, I hold both of those two things together. And, and I would argue this is essentially what Job does. It, he, he sits in this tension, but the thing is, as he is honest in the tension, it doesn't just sit there unanswered. His friends give him the sort of trite responses. They don't even really like engage in acknowledging what he's wrestling through and the reality of the honesty of that experience. They don't, they don't really acknowledge that. Um, and we talked about that, but also God responds to him. And what's fascinating, it's fascinating to me, God's response to him, multiple things are fascinating to me. But the first is that it takes a while. We don't get until Job 38, 38 chapters into the book. By the way, it's only 42 chapters long. So the vast majority of the book it takes, the vast majority of this sort of ancient ancient play, like if you imagine that this play is going on, the God character shows up in the beginning to sort of set the scene, and then we don't actually hear from him again until almost the end, until like the last 10 minutes of the movie, he shows up again. And so he takes a while. And I love that he waits. He lets Job sort of work this stuff out. He lets Job get the stuff off his chest. He lets Job say the things that he needs to say. He's not like Job's friends who just sort of like interrupt him and correct him and fix him. And, and like, no, no, he lets Job say what he needs to say. But then he responds. And it's not a mild response. It's not a like, thanks, Job, for getting that off your chest. I hear your truth. And I'm just going to, I'm going to let you sit in your truth. Like, no. Nah. He actually like pushes against him. He's actually like 
I feel like God's a bit sarcastic and a bit sassy with Job. Uh, I, I want to read you a, a good little chunk here out of Job 38 when he first responds to Job. It says that the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Like, who do you think you are? Like, you're saying all these words, but you actually don't know what you're talking about. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Like, Job, it's coming for you, buddy. I I got some things I got to say. You said your stuff, and now I'm going to say your, my stuff, and you better hold on because I got some things to tell you. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me. Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Like, I love, I love the sass here where God's like, hey, who like measured this? You must know because it seems like, Job, you know how things work. You know how I work. You know how all of this is working itself out. He goes on, he says, who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning? (laughs) To to which the answer is, no, I, I haven't. Have you ever shown the dawn its place? No. That it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it. He just goes on and on. And, and, and he's just in this sarcastic, sassy way like, Job, who do you think you are? Job, you have words without knowledge. Job, don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I have done? Don't you know what I have the capability of? Don't you know what I've created? You're questioning all these things, but you actually don't understand them. You're acting like you understand them, but you have words without knowledge. And Job now, Job now has this encounter with God where God is strong against him and is like, you don't get it. And Job now has to integrate this into his whole experience. I mean, the thing for Job is he can't just deconstruct his previous understanding. He, he can't just like throw it all away. He can't just be like, here's how I thought it worked and it doesn't seem to work that way anymore. And it's just all about deconstructing the way that he thought things worked. I mean, he has to do that at some level because his present experience isn't matching with his previous understanding, but he can't stop there. At some point, at some point, he has to start putting something back together. At some point, there has to be some kind of like reconstruction of the faith bits of his life. But now what he's got to do is he puts things back together and reconstructs a faith on the other side of all this is he's got to take into account his new experiences and his new understandings. And even the way that God has confronted him, he's got to bring all of that now into account. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about um, this work that this great Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann has done, and he's done this work on the Psalms. And, and, and I find that, like, I think it's got all this movement and application beyond the Psalms. He talks about the Psalms falling into this rhythm, that there are Psalms of orientation and psalms of disorientation, and psalms of reorientation. And the psalms of 
of orientation are the sort of Psalms where like, we're sure about who God is. We're confident. We know who God is. We're confident in his trustworthiness. There's no surprises in those Psalms. Things work out the way that they're supposed to work out. The formula works. The the categories work. And that's sort of the orientation's foundation. It's, It's where everything's trustworthy. And he says, then there's the disorientation Psalms. And in the disorientation Psalms, it's where the psalmist is like airing grievances. It's where things aren't working out right. It's when the way that I thought things should be don't happen anymore. And it's dark night of the soul stuff. It's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thought it was supposed to be like this and now it's not. And so there's disorientation Psalms. But then there's reorientation Psalms. And the reorientation Psalms are not a return to the old order not a return to pre-disorientation, but there's something new that's been put together that emerges out of the disorientation. This is the rhythm of the Psalms, but it's also the rhythm of our lives. It's, it's maybe even the pattern for Job. He, he has orientation, the way that things are supposed to work for him. And early on in Job, things make sense and they work in that way. And then there's disorientation. Everything is up in the air and things don't work in the way that he thought that they should. And he's got questions and he's got honest struggle and, 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 and he's got to get all of that stuff out. And then there's reorientation, which is what we get to at the end at the end of Job, in the last chapter of Job, we see a bit of reorientation. Let me read you just a a piece of it. Job 42, here's verse 3. Job is speaking and he says, you asked, he's talking to God, God, you asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? And he says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Here's what Job says. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And so so what happens, what begins to happen in Job's sort of reorientation, his putting things back together, his reconstructing of his faith, is that he begins to recognize his sort of like creaturehood. He recognizes his place with God Um, He recognizes who God is and who he is in relation to him. But this comes out of a new place. He's saying maybe some of the same things he would have said before. But but if he was saying them before, he's saying them without pain. And he's saying them without suffering. And he's saying them without disorientation. And for him to say the same things that he's saying now, for him to have said them before, it would be different. Like it'd be the same words, but it'd be like without the depth, right? Without, without, without the gravitas. It, it, it would be like smaller somehow. I mean, think of it. Think of it like the couple who gets married at 21 and they say to each other, they say, I'm committed to you through everything. And, and those are true words. Like they mean those words, but those words have a different depth to them when they say them to one another, like 40 years later after they've both lost their parents, after they've, they've buried a child, after all their fights and figuring out how to work all that stuff out, after, after birthing and raising children, after buying their first home, after moving and, and going somewhere where they didn't know anybody and having to rebuild community together, after, after all of those things, all of the stuff, all the things that would happen over 40 years of a committed marriage, that same couple looks at one another and says, I'm 
I'm, I'm committed to you through everything. And it's like, oh, it has this gravitas. There's a weight and a depth to it because it's being said on, on the other side of all of that stuff. And Job's words at the end of Job, they're on the other side of suffering. They're on the other side of disorientation. And they carry a weight and they carry a maturity that's different than him just saying those same words without having gone through all of that. We, we, need, we need people who are living on that other side. We need those words coming from that depth. We need the gravitas. We need, we need the people who have been through that. And listen, listen again to what he says in verse 5. He says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. There, there's a difference, friends, between knowing about and having experiential knowledge. There's a difference between knowing about God and experiencing God. There's a difference between knowing about suffering and experiencing suffering. There's a difference between knowing about prayer in dark moments and experiencing those dark moments and wrestling through prayer and wondering why am I even praying and, and engaging in it. And it's different. It's different. It's different. There's a different experience between knowing about a thing and experiencing having experiential knowledge. And when you have experiential knowledge, it's what actually can open you up towards more maturity. And so there's this maturity that you can only move towards if you allow yourself to go through disorientation. If you don't let yourself go through disorientation, there's a maturity that you will never go towards and that you'll never experience. If all you do is opt out, you will stop short. If all you do is double down on where you were, you will stop short. And yet, like, yeah, you you will feel good sitting in that place, but there's a level of maturity that you will never move towards. There's a level, there's a place that you will never get towards. There's a depth of experience that you will never have if you don't let yourself go through disorientation. And by the way, by the way, disorientation, the wall, that transition, it doesn't happen just once. It's not like you grow up in the church and then you have this like thing that happens in your 20s and then you come out on the other side. It's happening over and over. It is cycles and it's regularly, it's rhythms and you're regularly entering into it and moving out of it. New things, different things. It's happening over and over and over. And you will have to learn, you'll have to learn to continually sit honestly intention to keep moving towards more and more and more depth and maturity. In fact, one of my one of my grievances in the church is that we have a lot of people that we have elevated into positions of authority, into positions of teaching, into positions of like that we sort of put them up on the pedestal and they haven't gone through the disorientation. They've hit that wall and they've moved backwards, and they've doubled down. And so they're saying things that are true things, but they're missing the gravitas. They're missing the weight. They're missing, like, you know that. You've experienced that. Like, you might not have words for it, but, like, you have this intuitive sense, like, there's there's something that's that's missing here. And so the beautiful and, and like, frustrating thing about Job is that you come to Job with the question of, well, why does suffering happen? But Job never actually really answers that question, does it? 
Instead, Job invites us to lean in, and Job invites us to be honest in the midst of our own suffering. Job invites us to not settle for easy, trite answers about God. And Job invites us to find new encounters and new experiences of God on the other side of that disorientation. And a lot of a lot of my conversations with Christians these days are with people who are experiencing some level of disorientation. And I find myself telling them a few things. I find myself saying a lot of the same things over and over. I find myself telling them, like, you're not alone. There's a whole lot of other people going through this. There's a whole lot of other people who have gone through this. In the history of the church, you are not alone in these kinds of questions. You are not alone in this kind of wandering space. You are not alone in feeling disoriented. There's all kinds of people in your church with you right now who are experiencing the same sort of things. And so I encourage them to know you're not alone, to be honest, and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of those questions. Don't be afraid of the disorientation and be honest through it. Find people you can be honest with. Be honest with God. Be honest uh, with it. But I also find myself continually telling them there's something rich on the other side and and it's worth it. It's worth it to sit in that tension. There's something richer on the other side. So, my friends, that's it for our fourth episode. This has by far been our longest one. I'm sorry about that. My goal has not been for these to be super long, but there's so much in wanting to talk about Job's experience, and I didn't want to divide it up into a couple of episodes. And so my hope is to not to not have them be this long again. We're going to do, I think, just one more, one more episode on Job in the next one, because there's one more thing like the. This I almost wanted to wrap it up on this, but there's one more thing that was super fascinating to me about Job that I think connects with, with many of our experiences right now. It's connected with some of my own experiences right now, and so I just wanted to, to highlight that. And then, then maybe we'll move on to some other things. We'll figure out what else we, we do with this. I got a couple of the things that I want to talk about, and we'll see what, what pops up along the way. But um, as always, I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you being willing to give... 40 minutes of your time to, to kind of sit in this ancient story with me and to enter into it and to think about what it means for us to be people of faith in this time, in this moment, and, and to let that story sort of hit us and challenge us. And so thanks, thanks for letting me do that with you. And so until next time, grace and peace to you, my friends.